Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Amanda Slevin, chair of the Climate Coalition Northern Ireland, was my guest on today's show. In light of the UK declaring a climate emergency in recent years, and Boris Johnson promising a post-Brexit green industrial revolution, I thought it was the perfect time to get someone on the show to discuss what is happening here in Northern Ireland regarding climate change and green energy. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order. You'll find the links in the description below. So, here's Amanda. Okay, fantastic. So, Amanda, um, it's great to finally have you on the show. Thanks, Josh. Fantastic to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Not a problem. So, you work with the um, Belfast Climate Commission. Um, do you want to like give people a little idea of like what, what sort of work you're doing with them, or or what what that organisation is about? Just just to to start off. Yeah, absolutely, Josh. Thanks for that. Um, so, I'm an environmental sociologist by background, with a previous background in community development, adult and community education, um, and I work in Queens as part of the Place-Based Climate Action Network. So, we're a UK-wide network that is focused on supporting cities um, and communities to make transition to uh, a net zero carbon future uh, and to take action at different levels of, of our communities and cities. So as part of PCAN, we're funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. Um, I've been involved in setting up Belfast Climate Commission, which is supported, focused on supporting the city to, to take the key steps necessary to make a transition um, to a more sustainable future. Um, so within Belfast, we've set up our, our commission, it's been going for about a year, and have set up various working groups focused on, on key areas of activity. Um, and I chair the Community Climate Action Working Group of the Commission, which is focused on supporting communities um, to take action uh, on climate and, and to become more sustainable. So that's kind of my main work. Uh, alongside that, I also chair the Climate Coalition for Northern Ireland, which is a, a new, relatively new network focused on, on leading on climate legislation and policy. So great to join you today. Uh, so bringing in these different hats and areas of work that, I, that I'm doing around climate. Mm. So I like it's pretty it's a pretty good day to be able to talk about this. It was uh, either yesterday or the day before um, Boris announced his uh, his green industrial revolution. So uh-huh. like, is that is that a good positive step forward for us? Like does that like go far enough? Is it comprehensive enough in in your mind? I think it's it's definitely a good start. You know, we need um, political action, we need resourcing, we need funding, we need um, attention to climate and sustainability on an ongoing basis. So to see the Prime Minister um, allocate additional funding to prioritise key action, I think, yeah, it's definitely a good, you know, an important step. Because the key thing is that it's this plan for this 10 plan for for a green industrial revolution that it is achievable that it is uh, met with targets and supports for action at different levels across the uk so it's not enough to have a lovely strategy on paper that will provide funding for for some um areas of activity it has to be about recognizing how that fits with devolved government how that fits with action that happens at city level that happens at community level and all the rest so yeah a good start but we have to see how that's going to be manifested in northern ireland um and and what actions are going to happen here before before i ever get too excited about it anyway uh you know <laughs> good to see but a lot more to do mm. 
So like, then to sort of move towards Northern Ireland, like how, how, how green are we um, at the minute in, in Northern Ireland? Like, like where are we along the, the path to like carbon neutrality or at least um, some sort of like carbon reduction? Yeah, well, we are improving. Um, you know, our greenhouse gas emissions have been reducing uh, based on, on baseline levels. Um, you know, we're, we're doing better in relation to um, overall emissions are, are reducing, but we still have a key issue. Like, for example, um, we have a, a larger percentage of, of methane emissions in Northern Ireland. That kind of reflects the, the, the dominance of agriculture. So agriculture is the, the largest emitter of greenhouse gases in Northern Ireland. It's 27% of emissions. Energy supply is about 15, transport is 23%. So we have an issue like why, why we're seeing some reduction in emissions uh, in areas such as business, energy supply overall, residential sector. We are seeing increases in agriculture and transport. So we are doing better, but we have a lot of work to do, I think. Um, over, over recent years, we're seeing more attention to the need for concentrated action to move towards a green economy. Uh, the department's working on a, a green growth strategy, which will hopefully help transition across different key sectors and, and key sectors that have a large, large emissions. But we're, we're, we're starting to run in the right direction, but we have a lot of work to do to reduce our emissions, um, to move towards a net zero carbon future for Northern Ireland. Now, uh, I was talking to my mum last night, actually, about the, the new regulations. She was a little confused about, uh, she was concerned about the, the electric car mandate, or at least the, the ban on sale of petrol and diesel cars. She said, actually, that she'd been confused about the way it had been presented, as if the, those cars were just going to be totally illegal from 2030, yeah. that you weren't going to be able to drive them at all. Uh, and I had to, like, reassure her, it's like, no, you're just not going to be able to buy a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, like what? What would you say to people who feel like the like the say the state or the government or the executive just like handing down regulations for you know things that that we need to do like like uh, say like you you're gonna have to drive an electric car whereas they some people would say okay yeah that like I I'm happy to go green but maybe I'd prefer action on like a, a community level something that's gonna like benefit us instead of um, something that we're just being told we have to do that might seem like prohibitively expensive for, for a lot of people at the minute. Like she, w- she was like specifically concerned, for example, about the, the cost of, of an electric vehicle. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I can completely understand. Um, you know, sometimes we hear about these top-down measures and, you know, it creates fears about how are we going to afford to do these, um, what impact it's going to have for our lives. Um, when it comes to the sort of changes we need to make as a society, I think it's really important that there's work done with communities to explore what the issues are and to explore what our options are. Um, to just announce policy measures without having to do work with communities around what are the main sources of emissions, how are we all contributing, I think that's, that's a, bit of a, a bit problematic. So to think about um, okay, understanding how we live our lives, where the main source of greenhouse gas emissions come from, uh, and what we can do, I think it's a really important part to think about us individually and collectively making decisions to reduce our carbon footprint. Um, so when it, when it comes to um, electric vehicles, okay, great that you know that there's been some policy incentives to try and, and move towards less carbon intensive um, forms of private transport. But what about public transport? 
what about you know encouraging and providing support and sense for people to uptake more um public transport which will have a, a lower carbon footprint but what about also supports for active travel how do we make other forms of travel more attractive to private cars because let's bear in mind that when we talk about moving towards electric vehicles the production of electric vehicles has a quite a large um, ecological footprint as well where does the materials for those batteries come from what are the impacts of, of cobalt and, and lithium generation and production in other countries all that has a carbon footprint so when we're thinking about these these changes you know for us to be able to understand what the consequences of these changes are so that we can make informed decisions but recognizing that support has to be um, provided for people to make these decisions um, to reduce carbon footprint. So that support is, involves training, learning about these issues, but also then supports for people then to, to make proactive decisions to reduce their carbon footprint. So EVs are good. They're definitely a, a, an improvement on private car use with, which has large carbon footprint, but it's not the only answer. You know, what about let's have hydrogen buses, let's have you know, EV buses, let's have other forms of public transport which will help lower uh, the carbon footprint of transport overall, mm. alongside providing support for people to make these decisions themselves without being um, necessarily forced upon people. There has to be that meeting in the middle of um, bottom up of, of people making choices and changing themselves alongside the top down incentives and, and policy changes. Mm. So what, what measures have you, or like what programs have you either like uh, taken part in, like run or, or, or kind of proposing or, or hoping to see done that, that would, that would sort of make that kind of movement where you'd, you'd be bringing communities on board, um, for example, like is there, is there some examples of programs you've either, yeah, taken part in or, or mm -hmm. sort of planned to do to, to get people on board for that kind of like transition of the economy? Yeah, absolutely, Josh. Um, so then Belfast Climate Commission is supposed to think about bringing the different levels together. Uh, in Belfast, we have just conducted um, a carbon roadmap for Belfast, looking at the, the main areas in which we can reduce collectively our emissions. Um, so that's one strand of work happening on the Commission. Within the group that I chair, the Community Climate Action Working Group, we've done a bit of research with communities to look at what's already happening at a community level, what can we do to support communities to come together and undertake um, more actions. That piece of work is already happening, but we're seeing great examples of what communities can do already. You know, we're seeing examples of, of community gardens where people are growing their own food coming together. We're seeing examples of community-owned energy cooperatives where people are generating their own electricity um, through maybe it's solar photovoltaic panels on their homes to generate their own electricity, with solar thermal to generate hot water. We're seeing collectively-owned PV photovoltaic panels owned by communities, um, wind turbines. Um, and also other sports, you know, community centers and homes putting in alternative heating systems, such as air to water heat pump systems, which moves away from oil and gas for heating as well. So we can see that um, at a community up level, we're trying to support these sort of conversations. You know, we've had events on community energy. Um, we, we do educational initiatives with communities, workshops, et cetera, around um, you know what the issues are what we can do about it so that's what's part of what we're doing we're hoping to expand that strand on support for communities at a local level but we're also in the work around trying to inform and help policymakers make these decisions about how is we as a city uh, move towards a low carbon future and that and for example our research is, is emphasizing the importance of um, energy efficiency so importance of putting money into insulations and in homes to put money into um changing it, heating systems, all those sort of things are really important. But we do need to have those, bring those pieces together. It has to be analysis of the top level changes, but also around what communities can do. Because 
we all have to be part of the solution. You know, we can't leave any individual communities behind as we make transition to um, a greener society and economy. I mean, one of the critiques that I often hear of, of the climate movement generally is that they're not thinking of communities and of like just ordinary people, that they're just deciding that they're going to make these rules that are going to be too expensive for, for normal people to kind of get on board with or see the benefits of. Um, so it's, it's positive to see that like that's, that's like a huge part of, uh, of, your, of your work. Um, I'm curious to go like slightly more into detail about a couple of things that you mentioned there, actually. Um, I, I wasn't aware that we had like uh, that many community-owned energy cooperatives in, in Northern Ireland. Um, where are they? They're spread across um, Northern Ireland. So the Northern Ireland uh, Community Energy, uh, NICE, um, is one of the main hubs for community energy. So if you go on their website, you can see a map of where there are community energy initiatives. And, and that's, that's kind of spread across uh, different parts of NI. Uh, uh, Drumlin Wind Energy Co-op has supported the construction of wind turbines in um, Antrim and Armagh. And this is an evolving sector. And I suppose it's really valuable to point out is that you know, we're seeing this evidence when people are coming together and together, we're going to lead on this. We're going to take matters into our own hands because we want to be part of the solution. We're not going to have this done to us. We're going to do this together um, with others. So it's an evolving area, but we're definitely seeing, you know, this whole idea of energy democracy where, where people are making decisions about how we contribute to energy generation, how we can help collectively reduce our carbon footprints by moving away from oil and gas and coal dependency. Mm. I mean, the energy democracy thing is, is I think, like, so important because, especially with the, the, the absolute, like, chaotic and mad state of the world at the minute, like, uh, communities and, and just, like, Northern Ireland or the United Kingdom or Ireland as, as a whole being able to produce and rely on our own energy is, is such a boon for, for, like, our own just stability and, and ensured sort of future prosperity and i think that's that's kind of lost on a lot of people they, they don't realize like how, how beneficial it is to just be able to rely on on what we can do here to to generate our energy instead of being um at the whim or or not maybe at the whim but like at the at the mercy of the fluctuation of like the international oil or gas market and the the the, the prices going up and down dependent on like foreign wars or what's happening in Saudi Arabia or like, like to, to, to have our own like produced electricity is, is, is such a positive and like helpful thing for the nation. I think, I think that kind of gets lost sometimes. Oh, absolutely. And I suppose it's kind of understandable. We live in a very complex world. You know, we're all very busy with work and family and home life and all the rest. And sometimes it's a bit hard to think about actually where does the energy that is fueling my car come from? Where does that fuel come from? Where does the heat in my home, where does that come from? Those are big topics. Um, and it's complex to think about, you know, how does oil come from, whether it's Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Norway, how does that come from a seabed to end up in my tank? Um, so that's a complex topic to deal with. It's also complex to think about the power of the oil lobby um their connections in relationship to government it's it's challenging to think a bit about um the environmental destruction inherent to production of those resources about the social conflicts associated with oil and gas extraction uh, and it's complex to think about um the overall contribution of the oil and gas industry 
to, to climate breakdown um, research from the Carbon Disclosure Project um, suggests that about, I think it was over 70% of companies are responsible for, um, sorry, just 100, sorry, over 100 fossil fuel companies are responsible for about 70% of emissions. So these are big things to think about. Um, but it was one way to think about, you know, without overwhelming people is about actually, okay, I live in a world that's very dependent on oil and gas. We live in high carbon societies. Well, what can I do about that? How can I lower my own carbon footprint as, as an individual, as a, within my family, within communities? And that whole thing of us taking power of energy is really empowering that, you know, we can generate our own electricity. If we get the supports, because it is expensive to install solar photovoltaic voltaic panels, you know, it's expensive to um, install air to water heat pump systems. But when we do that in our homes and in our communities, you know, we're moving away from this global dependency, this network of, of energy production and, and consumption that has massive socioeconomic and ecological impacts to something that is about um, local level, us taking uh, ownership of our own energy uh, and, and, do, and reducing our carbon footprint with all the massive, massive benefits that come with that. Mm. I mean, I think it was, uh, there was a, a company in America, I think it was called Solar City, which I think is the company that, that Elon Musk ended up buying and the program didn't continue. But there was one point where they were having, they were offering people like free solar panels or something like super low cost solar panels that were paid for by a, like a, like a hedge fund or like a big uh, financial firm who were then getting paid back um, for the solar panel in part of the profits made from the energy that was generated. And it, it was like such a, such a cool idea that, that people were, were going to be given like the ability to, to actually like put money in their own pocket whilst at the same time, like trying to be a little healthier towards the planet. Like I, it's, it's, it's a really inspiring concept. Um, <laughs> Well, and that's it. There are so many opportunities for green economic activity and these sort of things about um, creating new, whether it's larger scale energy projects or, or supporting communities and providing investment for that. You know, I see with the finance sector, I think, is is increasingly paying attention to the value and, and green growth inherent to this transition that we need to we need to make. We can see that in our PECAN network, um, colleagues in the London School of Economics have created a um, finance and just transition alliance, which is about bringing together uh, investors, think about how to direct their funds into those sort of initiatives as well. So it's very exciting to see the change that are coming and the level of awareness that we're seeing across key domains for change. So um, Northern Ireland actually also has, in, in Balamina, we've got the, I can't remember what the name of the company is, but they're, they're making the, or they're, they're hoping to make a lot of hydrogen buses or hydrogen fuel run buses. Is, is that like a, is that like a, a, something that's coming imminently or is that like 10 years down the line? Um, yeah, there's a number of projects um, involved in like B9 Energy and, and Queen's is involved in some test centers to develop and, and some research on hydrogen buses. Okay. So that's really exciting it's just happening there. Um, I'm not sure about the timeframes because I'm not um, actively involved with those initiatives, unfortunately, but yeah, there are, there are great things happening. Um, we see great partnerships between um, communities, universities, businesses, uh, and investors that are about these key elements of hydrogen, uh, solar generation, all these kind of key projects that we need as we move towards a green society and economy. 
So what do you think the biggest resistance is that we're going to come up against in, in trying, to, trying to make this transition happen in a way that's um, beneficial to everyone and, and is fast enough so that we don't sink? <laughs> yeah, I suppose there, there's concerns across different domains. Um, I mentioned earlier that I chair the Climate Coalition for Northern Ireland. And, and we've been working in partnership with legal experts and um, politicians over the last couple of months to draft the first climate change bill for Northern Ireland. And that climate bill is currently with the Speaker's office uh, at the Assembly. But as we've developed our bill, so this bill is about providing the legislative framework in Northern Ireland to enable a just transition to an easier uh, economy by 2045. And some of the concerns we're seeing is that um, how do we support farmers to make a transition? Because we know in Northern Ireland, agriculture plays such a key role. So how do we help farmers make those transitions to um, different forms of production that will meet the needs of society, um, but will also ensure no communities left behind? So that's a key thing for us to think about is um, agriculture, to think about changes to energy generation. You know that we're, we're looking at more localized production uh, of renewable energies. How is that done in a way that um, is fair, that's inclusive, and that doesn't um, damage communities? I think we've seen a tendency in, in some parts to develop very large scale wind turbine projects um, without the participation or consent of communities. So as we move towards different forms of energy generation, we have to ensure that communities are on board with electricity generation, that it's not something that's done to them that energy generation is done in both communities, as well as communities generate their own electricity or are working in partnership with large developers to generate electricity. So I think we need to think about energy generation, we need to think about agriculture, and um, we also need to think about um, changing transport systems um, to minimize overall carbon footprint and ecological footprint. So to think about infrastructure, so these are some of the issues that we're discussing within the Climate Coalition and within Belfast Climate Commission more broadly, to think about what are the ramifications of the changes that we need to make to go where we have to go to reduce our carbon footprints, to, to move towards a, a low carbon future. Um, and, and so we haven't seen large resistance as yet, you know, particularly within the coalition, we're being very conscious of trying to engage with key actors to ensure that everybody's voice is heard as we look at changing policy frameworks and bringing in climate action plans. Um, but yeah, I think those the key sectors, I think if we look at those, we can anticipate that there may be resistance in some of those areas. Mm. So uh, how would you bring farm, like, do you have some ideas for, for policies or, or whatnot that would, that would help farmers accept mm -hmm. like this, yeah, this, this transition? Yeah, there's an interesting movement called the Nature Friendly Farming Network um, that are are working on that area specifically. So I'm not an expert in agriculture, I'm not going to pretend to be, but there are those who are um, and, and who are publishing reports and advice to farmers about how do you become more nature friendly? How do you re reduce your, your carbon um, footprint? How do we move away from the large scale dependency on, on livestock production? What other alternatives are there for farmers, whether that's around... Um, growing foods with uh to respond to, to need for food but don't necessarily entail the large carbon footprint that are associated with with generating and producing animals for consumption so there's networks out there and there's people who specialize in those areas that are providing advice to farmers about the options there but i think 
we need more attention to that. We need attention on a policy framework uh, and an educational level and around a finance level as well. How do we provide the practicalities for farmers to change away from intensive production patterns that are damaging to the environment towards, towards um, more sustainable processes and a way that brings people along um, with the change and not leaving communities behind or generate mass, mass resistance. Mm. And there may, you know, likely there will be resistance because we are deeply embedded in existing patterns of consumption, whether that's a consumption of dairy products and meat, uh, of private transport, where we were so used to driving our own cars everywhere. All of these things have environmental change, you know, consequences. How do we move away from those? You know, that's going to take change at an individual, individual level within communities, within different sectors, mm. but it's all possible. And actually, we need to make these changes if we want to have a healthy, sustainable planet for future generations and for our generations you know josh we're already seeing the consequences of climate breakdown and that's only said to accelerate um as temperature global temperatures increase mm. i mean i read uh the uninhabitable earth uh, i talked to to, to to professor john Bar barry actually about it um about how really just terrifying it is um when you you read just like simply just the cost of what we've done or what we're experiencing now, like nothing, like there are, there's a lot of uh, talk in the book about, about where we're going, but a lot of it is, is just trying to get us to understand like the, the year on year cost of like the increased extreme weather um, patterns that we're seeing at the minute, like not even based on like people's speculation or, or models or projections for what's coming in the next like 10 to 15, 20 years. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's pretty, it's pretty scary. Uh, but I think you make a good point there about about trying to like uh, we're going to meet resistance in where where people maybe stand to lose from from a transition away from the system we have at the minute. Like I I put this proposal to to Kelly Armstrong the the Alliance MLA like it must have been three years ago now um, when I first started doing this podcast that I had like just very slapdash put together about how how cheap it would be to make it free for everyone in Northern Ireland to use public transport and mm -hmm. to expand our, our public transport networks. And um, she was kind of a little bit dismissive of the idea because um, I just wanted to get everyone to pay like a, like a 200 pound pass, like, mm -hmm. like as an example. And then you just use all the public transport for free. Um, and like when, when you weighed up like the, the savings you would have in terms of like uh, just just how much less air pollution there would be, it would yeah. have been w worth it. But um, I I've, I've discovered from talking to some people within TransLink that like the, to make any kind of, any kind of movement you're gonna, or like change to their current setup, that you're gonna meet like serious resistance mm -hmm. um, from, from just like, for example, like the, 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 the people within TransLink who are, who are resistant to any kind of like structural or, or uh, re like change or reorganization. Like, how do you think we're gonna combat those people who are resistant and stand to lose a lot? Like, how do you how do you bring everyone along? Or is it literally a case of saying like we're gonna explain the benefits to as many people as possible and hope that we get enough people on board to to push forward with it? There's, there's a, a key role of, yeah, explaining to people the benefits of making these changes. But there's also, you know, as you refer to the conversation you had with John about explaining the reality, the consequences of what we're seeing. You know, we can see in Northern Ireland the changes over the last couple of years, the, the, the flooding, the extreme weather events, 
all of those are showing the impacts that kind of breakdown will have um, locally. But if we look at a global figure, you know, as you're talking, it reminded me of research that came out last year that showed that in a five-year period between 2013 and 2018, there were over 4,000 weather-related loss events recorded globally. Nearly 70,000 people died because of these weather events um, that were connected with, with changes to our climate and global temperatures. The economic cost of those events was estimated at uh, 964 billion US dollars. What? Yeah, so this is this is the reality of what we're seeing. What is happening on a global scale? What is the economic, what is the social consequences, ecological consequences of changes to our global temperatures and, and, and climate? And these are dramatic and, and absolutely devastating for those affected. So how do we how do we have these critical conversations where we understand um what we're doing has massive ramifications across the globe. But do it in a way that it's not about terrifying people, because you think with these figures, it gets, gets really overwhelming. So how do, we, how do we engage in these learning moments where we are exploring, these are the issues that are happening, these are some of the consequences, these are the benefits that will come if we create and work together to create a better, more sustainable future. Um, and so how do we tackle climate skepticism, climate denial, Eco-anxiety, which is a real thing. People are feeling anxious about these events. To foster hope that, you know, we can make a better world. Because we can. We know that when we come together, we can make dramatic changes. We can see that through COVID, about how we as societies and communities were able to, to make changes necessary to try and slow down the spread of the, of the virus. You know, we can, to, to know that we're creating a better world, that is in itself is a powerful motivator for people um, to bring about these changes. So yeah, I understand completely your point about resistance, about you know these issues are, are massive, somewhat overwhelming. But how do we how do we learn about these with a view towards making a better world together? Mm. Well, I mean, hopefully we can. I, I get the feeling actually that that the moment that we started like naming our storms, which I still think is just I I, I can't I can't explain to you enough how how stupid I think that is. Um, I think it's just a complete like Americanization of like the weather and it just it, it's like a thing that they get to sell it's like oh storm you know Dorothy or whatever and like a big headline but I also think it might be like a quite a significant moment in the fact that like storms of like a like a like a significant size and impact started to become so frequent or like significant enough in the every every single winter or autumn that that we had that we were we started naming them that there was enough justification for it that we might see that like as a, a point where we like that maybe we didn't wake up but like that that, that might end up as like a, a significant little moment where like there was suddenly like a, a small realization of the of the the consequences of 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 yeah like a, a warming planet and and like a warming ocean um in terms of those those storms can off the coming off the atlantic um yeah <laughs> Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a, you know, a good idea. And I think, you know, when we talk about um, understanding the causes of these storms and extreme weather events, but how do we adapt to the consequences of their frequency? So that's the whole thing about in climate action is mitigation, reducing our carbon emissions so that we're, we're slowing the contribution of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere and, and trying to limit temperature increases and um, um, weather events, but also then how do we adapt to the inevitable changes that are coming? So whenever we see sea level increases um, in Belfast, 
uh, around the West Coast. How do we deal with that? What flood defences are put in place? What strategies are there for communities to deal with? Um, you know, rivers, banks busting in their area and flooding their homes. So all those has to be part of the, the, the part of the solution as well is about those adaptation measures. Um, so again, without trying to overwhelm people, but you know, if we're thinking about storms, is to make those connections between Storm Dorothy and what Storm Dorothy might mean for our local area, and, and what can we do about it in terms of how do we reduce our overall contribution to climate breakdown, but then how do we cope with the consequences of it? Yeah, I mean, hope, hopefully, like it seems like, I think we're at least moving in the right direction. Like, how, how much credit do you give to, say, movements like Extinction Rebellion over the last, like, few years in in really pushing this forward as a thing that, that, that needs to be addressed? Because, like, if you told me five years ago, right, that, that like a really, like really right-wing conservative government would be the people to declare a climate emergency, become the first like country in, in the world to like have their parliament or, or yeah, legislative body pass like a, a resolution that says we are in a climate emergency mm-hmm. and be one of the first to like pass or at least really start like legitimately pushing some kind of like green new deal or, or green industrial revolution like we have um, now in Britain. We're like one of the first, I mean, it, this is not to pretend like we haven't like, like lagged on it for years, <laughs> um, but like a, they're, they're being one of the first governments to take like a really huge, like significant, like, look at us, we're doing this, like it needs to be done and we're going to take the credit and pretend we're the first like to do anything about it but at least like it's a big statement and if you told me like a conservative government was going to do that five years ago i would have called you totally insane um <laughs> like how, how much credit do you give to groups like like extinction rebellion or mm-hmm. say greta thunberg and the, the the climate strikes um or how much do you think it is just kind of like people like actually realizing in their own self that that, that perhaps like looking after the planet isn't an insane idea I think it's probably a combination of all these factors. You know, if you think about the role of academia and doing this research and helping us understand these are the issues that we're facing, you know, that has that groundswell of knowledge on these issues pretty has increased in recent years. You know, I've been engaged in, in understanding climate breakdown for about 10 years now. And I see a massive difference in the amount of, of evidence that's available now because we see that increase in, in evidence generation. But I do think that politically and socially, social movements have played a massive role in prompting this conversation about climate breakdown, about changing, about moving towards um, a better society. Recent, I was at a conference recently, or co-organized a conference recently um, on, on local climate practices about bringing together research and action to inform climate action. Um, and a colleague there from the UK, from the English University said that, um, their research with policymakers showed that extinction rebellion and skill strikes, all these social pressures was prompting them to take stronger action at a local authority level. And I think that's replicated at a government level as well. You know, we see the power of these social movements that are saying, we need change. This is the evidence that's there for it. These are the actions that we need to undertake. So I don't think it's any, no one individual is changing our policy, land, our policy landscape. No one individual is changing our social movements and our societies, but it's a culmination of evidence, of research, of social movements coming together, and of growing political uh, understanding and attention to these issues. 
that has been manifested now in things like the bars of strategy and the policy framework we see happening on a local level. Um, and I think it's really exciting because we are seeing a groundswell of understanding and of knowledge and of action around the climate and ecological crises. And we're also seeing, I think, um, greater willingness by political parties to address that. You're saying you know, five years, we wouldn't have thought a Conservative government would have done this. You're right, we wouldn't. We wouldn't have seen it. Uh, but we can also see um, within Northern Ireland, with our climate change bill, it has cross-community, cross-party support. So we've pretty much, nearly all the main political parties and independent MLAs have co-sponsored this bill. Um, you wouldn't have seen that a couple of years ago. No. So it's, it's really interesting how the dynamics have changed, how political dynamics, how social dynamics have changed um, locally and nationally and internationally. Mm, definitely. It's, it's, uh, it's a positive move forward, at least. I mean, I used to think that they were so bought by the oil industry that there was no way they would do it. So that's at least a, a good move forward. Um, <laughs> how, much, uh, how much damage do you think uh, things like RHI and then um, the, the recent uh, kind of still unfolding cash for wind um, scandal that's going on, which is essentially, uh, for people who don't know, it's, it's essentially RHI, except not quite on, on the, the horrendous scale and um, just based on, on wind turbine uh, subsidies. But like, how much damage do you think things like that have done to people's opinion of the climate movement generally? Yeah, it's, it's very concerning when um, political decisions have impacts and can induce scepticism of something so important as the climate movement. Um, I, I can't d deny that um, RHI and, and the emerging scandal will cause concern, does cause concern that state money has been used in ways that benefited some groups over others that resulted in questionable use of public finances. Um, but I hope that there's recognition that those changes don't represent the majority of a few points, don't re represent what people want to see necessarily. Um, and our call for a critical reflection by politicians about, about what is needed to respond to the climate emergency, about what are the best strategies to move towards a low carbon future and about if and when subsidies are considered, that it's not about benefiting a few at the expense of everybody else. Subsidies are used in an efficient way to support transition in individually in communities, but at a, school, at a societal level. But they're not done in a hidden way where we then see the scandal coming out about how public funds have been used and about how decisions have been made. You know, changes have to be done in a considered, measured way but also in a very transparent way that brings people along. So I think it's, it, it's an onus upon how politicians make decisions, about how policy is formed, about the need to engage uh, wide stakeholder, range stakeholders in policy formation. Um, but also that you know, we can't allow things, those sort of decisions to affect the scale of change that is needed to try, that, that can damage public support for change because it's too important. We have to have everybody on board to move to, you know, to bring, to bring away the change that we need to move towards um, a more stable future. Mm. I mean, yeah, the, the transparency thing is, is definitely important. I mean, one of the, even, even amongst like, uh, 
I don't want to let lump the same people in. There's, there's, there's like people who are climate deniers, and then there's people who, who are concerned about what the measures will, will bring or mean. Mm-hmm. And, and like a lot of the concern there is coming from people thinking that, I don't know, carbon budgets or stuff like that is going to be used to, to, to as like a, a metric or a way for like them to be controlled almost mm-hmm. as, as like a, an arbitrary thing. So like the transparency thing is, is so important so that you mm-hmm. get everyone that like understands that there's, there's, there's no bad thing that can come from, from trying to build like a more sustainable economy that, that means that the world that we have experienced thus far as, as humans remains as such, and that we don't like trigger some kind of horrendous catastrophic warming that, that leaves us in a, uh, yeah, leaves us mired in, in either rising sea waters or um, untold numbers of, of climate refugees from, from drier parts of the world um, that are already experiencing dry. I mean, one of the things that John Barry actually brought up was that uh, part of the reason for the Syrian civil war was drought and that it's kind of overlooked often as, as one of the reasons that, that we saw like the civil war kick off and then a lot of refugees like fleeing across the Mediterranean was the, the fact that the, there was a drought that was one of the triggers for the civil war. And therefore we could consider these people to be some of the first like climate refugees, um, which is, yeah, it's kind of scary that we're already seeing that. Um, but uh, slightly more positively, there's, uh, there's some, some cool people talking about uh, wanting to try and get a citizens assembly on, on climate measures. Like what, what do you make of that idea to, to kind of give it to the people essentially to, to decide what we would like I, to do I think, about yeah, it. I think citizens' arms are fantastic. Um, they're not the only answer, but they're certainly an important part of how do we engage um, everyday people in these sort of conversations. You know, the beauty of a citizens' assembly is that you bring together um, a sample representative of our overall population. They come in, they have access to different forms of expertise and knowledge. They get to evaluate this different forms of evidence and make up their own decisions. So I think, yeah, we need a citizens' assembly on climate action in Northern Ireland. But not just that, we need to have activities at a local level. So we can go to our local community centre in Balamina or East Belfast, or we can go to somewhere in uh, Oma, and we know that we can go in into a, a community centre, that there's information, there's access to this information, that we can engage in this as well. So yeah, let's have a citizen assembly, but let's also make climate education and training accessible to every community. Let's have uh, information supports about what we can do accessible to every community. Let's have more supports for community action around generating electricity, about improving their own uh, homes, energy home retrofits, energy efficiency. Let's do all of that. Let's have a suite of activities that engages our people at every step of the process. That's Mm. what we need Mm. to bring everybody on board. Couldn't agree more. So (laughs) how would you suggest that people get involved? Like say someone is listening to this and goes, yeah, no, I'd I'd like to look at more from um, from Belfast Climate Coalition or from... um, or just like trying to trying to find ways to maybe get their community more involved or get more involved in community projects in in their yeah in their their town village city street whatever like uh, where would you send them and what would you suggest they do thankfully now Josh there's an amazing array of groups and organizations and networks committed to climate action um, at different levels so within Belfast Climate Commission you know we have a website Belfast Climate you can do a search for it you can find us that shows about what we're doing at a local level within the city um we're part of this broader UK-wide network place-based climate action network or PCAN 
you do a search for pecan cities you can see what's happening in leeds london edinburgh surrey all these cities are coming on board as part of our network um, but if you're wanting involved in local level um there's so many organizations that are like umbrellas and supporting um climate action friends of the earth are setting up climate action groups extinction rebellion have a number of groups thinking involved in and um, we have the climate coalition northern ireland which is a, a network of individuals and organizations um committed to climate action so there's all these opportunities for people to connect in these broader movements we have at a local level then the uh, community energy cooperatives food networks community gardens there's so many ways that we can all get involved mm. Okay, well, uh, I will. If you want to send me some stuff, we'll link all of that in the, the description below. Um, but yeah, Amanda, thanks. That was a, it was a pleasure. Educational, informative, hopefully not too terrifying. <laughs> well, to, to end on a happy note, you know, we have so much capacity as humans to bring about change. Uh, we owe it to ourselves, to our future generations, and to other species to make the change that are necessary. But we can do it. We know we have to do but let's come together and decide what the actions we're going to take and, and, and put pressure on policymakers and governments to provide the resource that we need, need to make the necessary changes. Mm. So thanks, Josh. Great to talk to you today. Yeah, that's a great point. It's all within our grasp. Yeah, <laughs> it certainly is. <laughs>